You know, when we were in Rwanda a few weeks ago, one of the projects we worked on was refinishing a bunch of the school desks. Um, they work with materials they can source locally to build the villages, and they don't have any hardwoods in Rwanda. So the school desks are all built out of a softwood, similar to a pine um, that we would find here. So after years of use, the desks are all dented and rutted, and they get really hard for the kids to write on. So one of our projects was to refinish those desks, and we, the way we did it was we sanded them all down, and then we put a veneer, a thin piece of veneer on top of it. And if any of you do woodworking, you know what that means. It's a thin piece of sort of a plastic material that covers all of the blemishes. They're not gone. They're just covered up and hidden. Right? And on Sunday mornings, like we see in the video, many of us are like those desks in Rwanda. No matter what has transpired in the minutes or hours leading up to walking through those front doors, we put on a veneer and we try and hide over all of our blemishes. And this isn't just a phenomenon that happens at church, right? We put on facades at work. We put on facades with our neighbors. We put on facades with our families and friends. And sometimes those facades are okay because it's not always appropriate to bear our blemishes for everybody around us. But those veneers can also be a real obstacle to creating authentic relationships with one another. Right? We were designed and created by God for relationship. Relationship first and foremost with him, relationship with each other, and relationship with all of creation. But sin broke the design, and it made the development of authentic relationships harder to develop and much harder to maintain. In Genesis 3, we get this little glimpse in the story from the fall of man in verses 9 and 10. Right? But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Right? It's not in our nature anymore to allow ourselves to be known. Right? Man became aware of his blemishes that he inflicted on himself. And now, instead of allowing our blemishes to be seen, instead of allowing ourselves to be known by God and known by each other, our default reaction is to hide. Our default reaction is to put up that veneer and try and create a perception that everything is okay, like those desks. We tried to create a perception that there was a smooth writing surface now, and there was, but underneath that smooth writing surface, all the blemishes were still there. And that's a real concern for us, because as a church, we believe that the best way to touch people with God's message, which is our mission, is through the context of authentic relationships. Authentic relationships with each other that help us develop authentic relationships with God. But how many people do we really let know us? Right? How many people do we really let get close enough to see all of the blemishes? And even more importantly, do we ever let God see all of the blemishes? Do we ever let God really know us? If that veneer gets put up every time we walk through the doors, 
if we are always preoccupied with maintaining appearances, how does that affect the way we approach God as we gather for worship? How does that affect our worship with God, our worship of God and our relationship with God? And that's the question I want us to spend a few minutes considering today. So let's turn together again to Matthew 7, 21 to 23. It's already been read for us once, but I want to read it again. Matthew records Jesus' words from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a troubling passage, to say the least. So this passage comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, roughly chapters 4 to 6 in the book of Luke, where it's recorded also. And Jesus is, it's his first major public sermon that is recorded. He's been baptized, he was tempted in the wilderness, he called his disciples, and he's getting fame, and and it sort of records that he was gaining more fame as a teacher. And the multitudes came to him. And he sits down with them, and he proceeds to teach. And most biblical scholars will say this was probably not a short message. It probably went on for at least hours, if not days. And he gets to the end of all of his teaching about how we relate to each other, about how we should relate to God, about issues of justice and mercy and business and family life. And he gets to the end... And his conclusion is, he will say to many, I never knew you. So, what does it mean to be known? Well, this word knew, right, it's a little different than to know something. Um, And I don't know how to quite say it in English, noon somebody, but to, to be able to say, I knew you, right, the Greek word is genosko. Um, In One of the other places we find that is in the story of Jesus' birth, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 to 25, right? When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, right? Knew is the Jewish idiom for sexual relationship between man and woman. So it speaks of a very intimate knowledge, Right? An intimate knowledge that is the result of a process. It's not fact-based. It's very personal. Right? So when Christ says, I never knew you, right? he's not saying, I didn't know you. He couldn't say that. He's God. Right? He knows everything there is factually about us. Right? We can have no secrets Right? We can throw out all the omni words. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Right? He knows everything there is to know about us on a factual level. What he's saying is, I never had intimate relationship with you. I never knew you. 
right? Sometimes we have conversations. I know I get home from work some days, um, or I leave the house to go to work, and I might be in a terribly bad mood, right? And my wife sees all of those facets of me because she knows me. Um, and sometimes she'll, she'll say to me, she'll say, you know, as soon as you walk out the door, you're not going to treat anybody else the way you just treated me. Right? And that's a humbling statement. But it's true. Because I walk out the door and I walk into a contextual situation and I put up that veneer. I let her in. But do I let God in that way? Do I let others into my life that way? Right, we usually hear this in news reports, and I don't want to recount a bunch of terrible news stories for you, but somebody does something terrible that's so out of character, and they interview neighbors and friends and family. And the typical refrain you hear is, I thought I knew him, but I guess I didn't. Right, these verses in Matthew present a real challenge for us, both individually and a church, because we have become so practiced at not letting ourselves become known that it creates real issues for us in having authentic relationship. And historically, right, most of our evangelistic activities, most of our efforts to touch people with God's message have been focused almost exclusively on our knowledge and acknowledgement of Christ. But this passage would suggest we also need to be concerned about his intimate relational knowledge of us. Right, so what does it mean to be known? Let's go back to our passage and learn about these people who Christ never knew, which will, I think, give us a glimpse into how we become known. Right? It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Right? There's two primary things we see in the passage about those who he did not know, which, I'll be perfectly honest, give me great pause. One, they openly proclaimed who Christ was. And they didn't just openly proclaimed it, but they proclaimed it in zeal, that repetition of the word Lord. Lord, Lord, and it, and it recounts that twice. Twice they say, Lord, Lord. And in, in the Greek context, when they repeated words, right, that was a, it was an exuberant proclamation. They weren't hiding. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I believe in God. No, they were, they were very happy to stand and say, but Lord, I know you. I know who you are. I believe you are who you say you are. Right? And they did many mighty works. They did great religious service. They prophesied. They cast out demons. It says they performed miracles. But yet Christ will say, I never knew you. Because apparently there was no intimacy Apparently, there was no fellowship between them. Right? In effect, Christ is saying, you took my name to make your name. You took my name to work your miracles. You took my name for certain self-centered purposes. But you did not know me. And I did not know 
you. Right? What, will Christ, what Christ says to us on that day will be based on whether our verbal profession is accompanied by our moral obedience. Right? Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. A verbal profession is indispensable. Please hear that clearly. Right? A man who refuses to say, Lord, Lord, will never be saved. That's clear from Scripture. But what also is apparently clear is not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved. Right? Our intellectual orthodoxy does not create a saving faith. We could be absolutely correct in our beliefs about Christ, our beliefs about his nature, his lordship, but yet not be saved. Right? And these false claimants had done many mighty works in Christ's name. And there's no reason. I think my, my skeptical nature, I read that and I say, sure, you did great things. Right? We can all say we did great things. But it, there's a common theme in Scripture that where, where Christ testifies, and then Peter also, Paul also talks of this, that many will do great works. And through their great works, they will deceive others. So there's no reason to doubt their great works. But their great works don't necessarily prove anything. Right? There are plenty of great philanthropists and humanitarians in our world today who are doing great things for people, things that are completely consistent with biblical principles, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, providing health care for the sick, things that are completely consistent with biblical principles, yet they don't understand the fundamental reality of the gospel message. It's a common biblical refrain, and it should serve as a warning to us about how close to spiritual reality we can get while knowing nothing of the fundamental reality. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Right? It's an issue of the heart that we have to deal with. Love is an issue of the heart. Right? And the verse says many. Many will do these things and yet will be turned away. Right, the implication of the passage is that lots of religious people are really lost because their hearts have never been transformed and they do not do God's will for the right reasons. Right, and we're not talking about salvation by works. What we're referring to is God's will is Christ had just revealed it through his entire sermon because these verses come at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. What he's basically saying is, do everything we've just talked about. Right? And beginning in Matthew 5, it begins with the Beatitudes and it continues with 
this deep ethical and spiritual obedience that Christ describes that is found in God's kingdom. And, right, and he deals with God's will for our marriages and our families, our relationships with one another, our business transactions, our legal proceedings, our care for the poor, our pursuit of justice, and our worship. Right, what God wants is a heart obedience, an obedience that's not just on the surface, but an obedience that permeates deep within us. Right? These people that Christ never knew in a saving sense, they went a long way in their religion. They went a long way in their proclamation and performance. But Christ is looking for more than proclamation and performance. He's looking for an honest relationship that gets underneath the veneer. Right? These people had gone a long way. They had made an open profession. They had undertaken religious service. They were exceedingly zealous and they kept their practices up for a long time. But they were fatally mistaken. And they found out their mistake in the most terrible of ways. Right? Their message came from their heads and not their hearts. They could talk and they could sing, but they didn't have the grace of God in their souls. They knew Christ's name, but yet they didn't have his nature. They quoted his name, but they never copied his example. They knew his name, but they did not know him. And in the end, he knew their names, but he did not know them. Right? They prophesied, but they did not pray. Right? Prophecy is not essential to faith. But prayer most certainly is. Right, prophesying, giving a sermon, right, standing up here does not change your heart. But authentic prayer most certainly does. What do our prayers look like? Are they authentic and honest like the Psalms of David? Right, my goal today is not to undermine anybody's assurance of their salvation. But the passage says many. And just suppose for a second that you're not saved, that you're not truly saved, that you don't have that true, authentic relationship. Because we've never let Christ see what lies underneath the veneer. I'd far rather you be offended today by that notion than that you arrive at the last day and be surprised because we were never warned. Right, David, the second king of Israel, who was called a man after God's own heart. Wrote Psalm 139, among hundreds of others. And this is the great psalm of God's knowledge of us. Right, and listen to how it begins and ends. Right, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have searched me and known me. And he goes on, you know when I sit up and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. Where can I go where you will not find me? And he goes on, and I'm not going to read the entire thing for us. But he takes this kind of weird turn um, in verse 19. right? He's recounting all of God's beautiful knowledge of him. And then he takes this weird turn in verse 19. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of God, depart from me. So he moves from this beautiful discourse on God's intimate knowledge of him and goes right to murder. Well, it's a little disjointed, but the important thing is what he's doing is he's burying his heart before God. He's saying, God, this is how I really feel. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. And you see that throughout the Psalms, which is why I think God, David is a man after God's own heart. Because David never has the veneer. Right? He just lays it all out there. And you read the Psalms sometimes and you think, wow, you really said that to God? Like, I would never say that to God. But maybe that's the problem, is that I would never say that to God. Because he then goes on for four or five verses about his hate and loathing for his enemies and his desire for them all to be killed. And here's how he finishes. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Wouldn't it be better for us to ask God now to search us and to try us than to wait for that day? The way to test ourselves is to look below the surface, to look underneath that veneer and to invite God to do the same thing with us. Right? We need to look not just at the words that come out of our mouths and the accomplishments of our hands, but we have to look inside at the attitudes of our heart. Right? I know I'm guilty of this more often than I'd like to admit. I might be doing good things for other people, but sometimes my heart is just angry about it. Just angry about it. It's not the good things that matter. It's the attitude of our hearts as we do those things. All right, we can't just look at our creedal orthodoxy and our statements of faith or the apparent results of our ministry, but we need to look to see if our lives conform to the character of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that Christ laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And ask ourselves these questions. Am I poor in spirit? Am I meek? Do I have that positive quality of strength in saying, yes, I am a sinner? Am I compassionate to those who are hurting and lost and in physical need? Do I forgive or do I hold on to my grudges as my dearest possessions? No matter what others do to me, will I stand up for the truth? Will I stand up for God and will I stand up for others? It's a good exercise for us to evaluate all of our lives through the lens of how it will look on that day. And like most exercise, it might be a little bit painful. But it will make us stronger in the end. Right? God is not just interested in what we do when we walk through these doors on Sunday morning. He's interested in what we do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's not just interested in our tithe. He's interested in how we use everything he has blessed us with. What are the things we most prize? Where do we derive our greatest pleasures? What is the chief objective of our lives? Good questions for us to consider. 
you must judge for yourselves whether you know Christ or not, and I must judge for myself. We must judge for ourselves whether Christ really knows us and whether we allow him in under the surface to really see who we are. And if you're uncertain whether he knows you, then come to him. Open up. Trust him this very moment. If you've made a mistake up to now and have not really known him in that intimate, personal way, you can begin to know him now and he can begin to know you. Right? And as we saw in David's psalm, he began with search me and know me and he ended with search me and know me. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing process. It's a lifelong process. And if you have known him, if you are just so confident that you know who he is and he knows who you are, it's a great opportunity to renew and deepen your relationship with him by taking this type of inventory of yourself. Right? We all have relationships in our lives that at one point in time were just so close and intimate. And then over time, we, for various reasons, we grow apart from the, some people we love and that we hold dear to ourselves. Right? We need to reinvest to regain the intimacy to regain the intimacy that we once had. I pray that we will each always be able to say, yes, Lord, blessed be your name. I do know you, and by your grace, you know me, and you will know me forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you reveal to us through it. I pray that you would really know us, that we would allow you inside, that we would allow you beneath the veneer of our lives, that we would not be concerned with putting up fronts when we come before you, but that we would be willing and able through the power of your spirit to lay ourselves bare at the cross of Christ, and that you will say to us in that day, I know you. Welcome to my peace. In Jesus' name, amen.